Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about the haha at Southerton. Ha-ha! Ha-ha! <laughs> <laughs> This episode takes us to the part fairly early on in Mansfield Park, where the young people, plus Mrs. Norris, go on a visit to Southerton. A lot is going on in these chapters of Mansfield (laughs) Park. I mean, a lot, a A lot lot is going on. And we will walk through a bit of the blocking of where everybody is at later on. But we're going to start with the first mention of the haha when Fanny, Edmund, and Mary Crawford are out walking the grounds. So here it is from the text. A few steps farther brought them out at the bottom of the very walk they had been talking of, and standing back, well shaded and sheltered, and looking over a ha-ha into the park, was a comfortable-sized bench on which they all sat down. Okay, so they're, they've got a scenic view for themselves right now. Mm-hmm. It's very nice. Just taking a little, a little bucolic rest on this <laughs> very conveniently placed bench. Absolutely. So we are obviously going to start out by just defining what a ha-ha is, because it sounds like a punchline. Um, (laughs) The simplest definition of a ha-ha is that it is a sunken fence that may not immediately conjure up a clear image in your mind. So, of course, we will be elaborating a bit more on just what that is. A ha-ha, or a foss, is a wall or barrier that is sunk into the ground. On one side of the trench, the ground is level with the top of the wall. On the other side, there is a somewhat steep slope that goes from the bottom of the wall back up to the elevation height at the top of the wall. The purpose of a ha-ha is twofold. First, it is meant to prevent livestock or game from moving from open grazing areas to land that is enclosed. The second purpose of the ha-ha is an aesthetic one. Because the barrier is sunk into the ground, it creates an illusion that there is no barrier. So it just kind of disappears into the landscape. And as Kim Wilson points out in her book, In the Garden with Jane Austen, the pleasure grounds on large estates were, quote, separated from the park, sometimes with fences. But the preferred method was to use that great innovation of the early improvers of the estate, the ha-ha, a sunken fence that preserved the view from the house while keeping the livestock off the lawn. So we're out in the country, but like, We're going for a certain type of appearance of being out in the country, you know? (laughs) Like, we want our flocks of sheep, but we want them in very specific places. At a distance. We want them, you know, in in the background. (laughs) The term ha-ha supposedly comes from the sound of surprise or laughter that one might use when they come across this unexpected barrier. This is so funny to me. I just, I love this so much. This will never not be a funny etymology, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the beautiful thing about this, too, is that during Austen's era, it could be spelled either ha-ha with a hyphen in between, or it could be spelled like ha exclamation point, ha exclamation point. (laughs) Just kind of ha-ha, which really embodies the range of potential reactions if you come across one of these things. And that is the only way you will ever hear me say it. If I'm ever out in England and I'm walking about and I come across a ha-ha, I will for sure turn to my companion and say, look, a ha-ha! Um, and 
then we shall proceed. Seems appropriate. I think I think that makes sense. Yes. <laughs> so according to the Oxford Companion to the Garden, quote, the earliest known use of a haha in England is at Levens Hall, where the Frenchman Guillaume Beaumont worked in the late 17th century. It is described in a letter that remains at the house dated April 1695 as the ditch behind the garden and is still in place. In England, the haha became a vital part of the landscape garden, allowing views of the park without permitting grazing animals to escape. Again, like we really got to hammer that home that mm-hmm. this is like, we've got our animals. It doesn't look like there's a fence, but there is actually a fence. It's an illusion. It's an illusion. <laughs> In Tilden Russell's article titled, On Looking Over the Ha-Ha, he writes that the ha-ha was probably the most important technical innovation in the development of the English landscape garden in the early 18th century. So this means the ha-ha grew to some prominence, particularly through the age of estate improvements, which includes individuals like Capability Brown and Humphrey Repton discussing the pros and cons of such a construct on these lavish estates. For example, Repton makes a substantial case for the use of concealing boundaries while improving the aesthetics of an estate. One of his top three methods is a ha-ha. He uses the more exciting ha-ha, which <laughs> As he I should. Of. He is also really insistent that the visual illusion that there is no break in the scenery is a crucial element of this kind of barrier. I just keep thinking of Job Bluth from... Arrested Development. It's an illusion, Michael. (laughs) That is the correct way to use that phrase. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Repton writes in his work, Observations on the Theory and Practice of Landscape Gardening, published in 1803, quote, Where this sunk fence or foss is adopted, the deception ought to be complete. We must therefore so dispose a foss or ha-ha that we might look across it and not along it, For this reason, a sunk fence must be straight and not curved, and it should be short, lest the imaginary freedom is dearly bought by the actual confinement, since nothing is so difficult to pass as a deep sunk fence. And he really does emphasize this idea of imaginary freedom and actual confinement. He really makes that emphasis clear. He also writes later on that the haha offers, quote, more actual confinement than any visible fence whatever. So it's like it's a really hard barrier and therefore might be actually harder to transgress than just a traditional fence. And Repton's commentary here emphasizes concepts of freedom and confinement within the landscape in some pretty meaningful ways, especially once we take these concepts into Mansfield Park. So come along with us as we delve a little bit more into the ha-ha brouhaha. (laughs) Yes. I love it. Okay, as we mentioned earlier, there is a lot going on in the chapters that make mention of the haha at Southerton. Reminder, this is Mr. Rushworth's estate. And so we're going to do a mini walkthrough of the plot and the blocking of all these events. Kind of important to the context of the way that Austin was using the haha as a metaphor. After the young people have finished touring the interiors of Southerton, they are all really anxious to walk around the estate without adult supervision. I mean, they're all technically adults, but, you know, without... Chaperonage. Without Norris, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Without a chaperone, they break into different groups, and Fanny, Edmund, and Mary Crawford leave the main terrace lawns 
and make their way through an unlocked gate to what Austin describes as a wilderness, which was a planted wood of about two acres. After a while, Edmund and Mary argue if it's been a mile from the start of the wilderness path that they've been walking on. Austin writes, quote, a few steps farther brought them to the very bottom of the walk. So we're, we're into that passage that we started off the episode. They end up at the ha-ha and the bench, and they all sit down. So now you might be thinking, hey, I thought ha-has were supposed to be essentially invisible. How did they know that they had reached one without having an amazing and potentially dangerous ha-ha <laughs> moment? Well, everyone, just sit tight. That's what we're here to explain to you all. <laughs> And I think it's important that you point out that there's danger here. If there's like an invisible ha-ha, like that you could just like fall into one, it seems, seems hazardous. Ha-has. So aesthetically picturesque and so potentially dangerous. Absolutely. Right? The danger of a ha-ha. So very real. Okay, so now they are sitting at this bench and Mary starts to get bored. So Austin writes, quote, after sitting a little while... Miss Crawford was up again. I must move, said she. Resting fatigues me. I have looked across the ha-ha till I am weary. I must go and look through that iron gate at the same view without being able to see it so well. So this particular ha-ha is substantial enough that it doesn't quite disappear into the landscape. Repton was also aware that there were times when this wasn't possible, and he wrote that, quote, where a ha-ha is higher than the eye, as it must be against deer, the landscape seen through its bars becomes intolerable. This leads Inger Brody in her article, Papas and Hahas, Rebellion, Authority, and Landscaping in Mansfield Park, A plus title all That's the way around. So good. This leads her to conclude that there are deer on the Southerton estate. Which would make sense. I mean, this is a huge estate mm-hmm. with a huge park. He's got twelve thousand a year, you know. Yeah. So Yeah. That all makes sense. Yeah, it's huge. It's well-established. And that explains why the haha isn't entirely invisible. It has to be tall enough to deter larger livestock than just sheep. So when Mary Crawford is talking about how she doesn't want to look at the haha anymore, she wants to go to the gate, she's basically saying that the seat that they're on is close enough to this large main gate that would give them access to the lar- larger domain of the park beyond the haha. So this is the open grazing area. So... It's a view there, and then there's this, this gate that will give them greater access to what's beyond the haha. But now again, you might be thinking, um, but hahas can't have gates if they're sunk into the ground, Zan. How does this work? <laughs> so the gate she is referring to is what Russell describes as an ambiguous variation of the haha, in which, quote, the haha actually is breached. A path leads across it, but a visible conventional gate bars the way with spikes guarding any space between the gateposts and the ha-ha. Russell also points out that very few books on landscape that reference ha-has from this era actually address this particular type of breached ha-ha, since it's perhaps the less aesthetic version. It also removes this idea of an imaginary freedom that Repton refers to. This kind of ha-ha simultaneously reinforces the fact that you are in fact being confined while also showing you exactly how you could escape the confinement. You know, the gate is right there. So as Russell writes, quote, the landscape beyond the ha-ha is no mere decorative illusion. It can be entered. Taking all that and going back to the text, 
Mary and Edmund decide that they are going to continue walking without Fanny by following a, quote, straight green walk along the bottom of the wood by the side of the haha to determine how far they've walked. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's the purpose of the walk, Diane. No ulterior motives at all. Yep. 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 <laughs> it is truly a very interesting example of flirting, you know, like yes. <laughs> it's like the kind of thing that Caroline Bingley would have attempted, but it didn't work out for her. Right. Yeah. She's like, let's talk about pens. Mm-hmm. And but Mary Crawford being like, oh, it's it's a mile. It's not a quarter mile. It's at a half mile. Like they're they're back and forth. Like it's working right. out great for her. Right. So. She's like, we must walk further alone in order to uh-huh. sta- establish some logistics. No other reason, Edmund. Well, and then when Fanny's like, oh, I, I'm actually rested enough. I can I can go with you. And they're both just like, oh, no, it's fine. Like, no, no. Stay there. You look awful. You look so tired. <laughs> you should definitely stay on this bench. Oh, gosh. You couldn't possibly. We're just concerned about you and your health. Mm-hmm. You stay here. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. No lies detected. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so then over 20 minutes later, <laughs> let that sink in, Mariah Crawford and Rushworth find Fanny still sitting here and waiting. After a while, Mariah and Crawford say they must go into the park and they pressure Rushworth to go back to the house to get the key. So Rushworth is going to be gone for a little while while he goes to get this key. And this is the key for the gate to go into the park. So then we get all sorts of double entendre talk from Crawford and Mariah while Fanny is right there. <laughs> so we get this passage. <laughs> Your prospects, however, are too fair to justify want of spirits. You have a very smiling scene before you. Do you mean literally or figuratively? Literally, I conclude. Yes, certainly the sun shines and the park looks very cheerful. But unluckily, that iron gate, that ha-ha, gives me a feeling of restraint and hardship. Mm, that's a metaphor, friends. <laughs> and Austin does not do this kind of like overt symbolism, right? No, like, very you know. rarely. Yeah. So it's a really interesting scene for that where we really are like, oh, I wonder what this is all supposed to symbolize. Like <laughs> it's it's right there for us. Yeah, it's it's relatively overt for Austin, for sure. And we get Mariah being pretty direct about this feeling of being restrained. And it's again, it's it's a very direct correlation. Mariah feels trapped by her impending marriage to Rushworth. And in this moment, she's literally trapped inside his estate. As Brody puts it, quote, the ha-ha in Mansfield Park that separates the untamed wilderness from the manicured park is visible to characters wandering in the wilderness, but not from the central, officially picturesque views of the house and its lawns. Ha-ha's thus attempt to maintain order while also hiding the traces of the landscape gardener's hand. They represent a masked or hidden imposition of authority. So they're trying to be out in the wild, out in nature, doing all these things. But there's a lot of man-made structures and authority that are blocking what Mariah wants most. We want it to be natural. Go do a lot of work to make it look natural. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, and then it's very natural, but we put a gate here with a lock. It's it's a real contradiction, and Mariah feels that pretty strongly. Crawford then says, And for the world, you would not get out without the key and without Mr. Rushworth's authority and protection. Or I think you might with little difficulty pass round the edge of the gate here with my assistance. I think it might be done. Mm, okay. 
If you really <laughs> wish to be more at large and could allow yourself to think it not prohibited. Could allow yourself to think it not prohibited. Like, if you could just kind of, like, loosen up on all these strictures and, like, just be cool, Mariah. Like, be cool. And, like, we can get through the skate together. Mm-hmm. You don't need to wait for Rushworth's authority. Like, it's, ooh, Crawford is very, very literally trying to tempt Mariah to cross a boundary that she knows she shouldn't. They're both guests at the Southerton estate, and the lock and gate clearly indicate what is and is not allowed to its guests. That's the literal thing that they're trying to, to transgress. Similarly, this is referencing, foreshadowing, Crawford's seduction of Mariah. He's asking her to transgress physical as well as multiple social boundaries. And Fanny, who these two seem to have basically forgotten about or just don't even care that she's there. Fly on the wall moment here. Uh-huh. <laughs> Fanny, Mariah, and Crawford, they all know it. They know it enough that even Fanny feels like she needs to speak up. Yeah, which is, that's a pretty big impetus, honestly. Fanny doesn't like to speak up if she can help it. But she she's, a, she's very aware of the double entendre, basically, that's happening here. And she makes one last attempt to warn her cousin. And she says, You will hurt yourself, Miss Bertram, she cried. You will certainly hurt yourself against those spikes. You will tear your gown. You will be in danger of slipping into the ha-ha. You had better not go. Too late. They're gone. Well, and even when they're gone, Mariah's just like, my gown's fine. Like, she's Mm -hmm. pretty flip about the whole scene. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fanny's caution here is also really revealing. Critics like Jill Haight Stevenson and her article, Slipping into the Ha-Ha, Body Humor and Body Politics in Jane Austen's novels, considers all of these references to spikes and tearing as a not-so-subtle reference to sexually transgressing society's rules. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's very loaded language, basically, what's happening here. This idea of slipping into the ha-ha is like slipping into that temptation. It's, it's sexually transgressing, essentially. And yet again, I hear you ask, how did they maneuver this escape from the gates and the ha-ha? Because, you know, I don't know how many of us have actually tried to escape a ha-ha before. So there's a little wiggle room with this specific kind of a ha-ha that has a gate. Since the ha-ha's practical purpose is to keep the animals out, the gate only blocks off the bridge or the path that breaches the ha-ha's masonry wall. So the little spikes that Fanny is referring to are lowish to the ground spikes that are like a little fence that would prevent an animal from jumping across the area right next to the gate where the ha-ha is at its shallowest. So Crawford, Mariah, and later Julia all step over these small spikes and then edge briefly around that shallow part of the ha-ha until they can cross the path into the park. But a couple of things like logistically that you need to be thinking about this is that, again, if these are spikes that are at, like at least knee height with iron spikes on top. Obviously, that's what Fanny is kind of referring to. Like, you will tear your gown. There's these spikes. Think of the way that the dress that she's wearing would have to be hiked up so high. Takes a bit of work. Definitely doable if you're determined. But that's how they would have gotten around this gate. So we're still at the haha with Fanny when several minutes later, Julia arrives and is a little bit put out because everybody else is gone. And After Fanny explains where Mariah and Crawford are, quote, Julia immediately scrambled across the fence and walked away. (laughs) Five minutes later, Rushworth arrives. He's understandably really kind of surprised, upset. You know, he's like sad and irritated. Like, it's it's a lot for him. Yeah. 
about the fact that everyone has gone on without him. And so Fanny tries to soothe him. And he's just like, okay, well, I'm going to go too. So he eventually follows using the key to access his park. So (laughs) everyone's been waiting for him to arrive with the key. By the time he gets back with the key, everyone's already gone. (laughs) Yeah. And they've maneuvered around the gate that he owns. You know, like it's, it's, he's just, yeah, poor Rushworth. You kind of feel for the guy right now. Yeah. Oh, dear. (laughs) So Fanny is finally tired of waiting for Edmund and Mary. And so she follows their previous path a short distance and finally catches up with them. And she finds out from, and this is from the book, they were just returned into the wilderness from the park, to which a side gate, not fastened, had tented them very soon after their leaving her. And they had been across a portion of the park into the very avenue which Fanny had been hoping the whole morning to reach at last, and had been sitting down under one of the trees. Hmm. Okay. Mm, I'm not impressed. They're basically just like having a little picnic, essentially, you know, just like underneath the trees. That Fanny was going on and on about. And we talked Uh about the avenue in a previous episode. And then they're like, oh, Fanny, we thought we would finally come back to you. Oh, well, day's over. Go back to the house. (laughs) Just oh. So these two found a way to cross the haha and access the park without necessarily breaking any social rules since they found an unlocked side gate. Probably what we'd call a loophole, you know, (laughs) but that's like on the edge of what Edmund will allow himself. Right. Yeah. He didn't have to like go over a fence. He just found a fence that was probably unintentionally open. But, you know, they got to explore the avenue without Fanny. And then just like take a rest under the trees. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Okay. Okay. So that was quite a journey. (laughs) Both physically and emotionally. So accurate. Now we get a really good sense of how significant this element of the landscape really, really is. If we accept that the ha-ha stands as a metaphor for authority, society, and other kind of constructed barriers, we see that pretty much every one of these young people found ways around them. Obviously, Fanny being the exception. So according to Brody, insofar as the ha-ha and its gate symbolize the restraints dictated by society, and Mr. Rushworth's key symbolizes its sanctioned propriety. The three responses are very interesting. Mariah and Julia Bertram both disregard even the appearance of propriety in their eagerness to satisfy their desires and overtly insult their host in the process. And Mary Crawford manages to satisfy her desires without directly breaking any of society's strict conventions. Fanny, meanwhile, is the only character who neither violates the haha nor feels threatened by it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and also Rushworth, because he has a key. Because he so, has the key. You know. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of, he holds this really interesting place in this whole scene because he's obviously the person who owns the estate. He has the key. So he's technically authority, but he's also the scapegoat throughout the whole thing. Like he's he's both parts, like one of the young people, but the representation of authority and the fact that like, Nobody even really thinks of him or takes him seriously. It's really interesting in the scene as well, where it's like, yeah, he's technically in charge of things. But like Southerton is just a place where you go wild and you just transgress ha-has wherever you want. It's such an interesting scene, too, because we feel bad for Rushworth. He's just kind of he's a little hapless, kind of bumbling yeah. around. Yeah. He has no idea that his fiance does not like him at all, let alone love him. Like she doesn't even like him. Yeah. 
And he just thinks like, you know, they were just talking about improvements. And he's like, yeah, I think I'm going to try to get Repton to do the improvements at my estate. And also, oh, Henry Crawford, you know things about improvements? You should come and check out my estate while you're also checking out my fiance. You know? Yes. Yeah. It's... <laughs> and he has no idea. None at all. Yeah. But like, I do also, I feel for Mariah in the situation where she is so constrained by all of these strictures about what she is supposed to do and like, the difficulties in breaking off an engagement and what that might do for her prospects. And, you know, she is kind of smart enough to know that 12,000 a year, like, is pretty good. Yeah. And you've got this other guy that you might be into, but he's not really giving you, he hasn't pulled you aside and said, I love you. Break it off with Rushworth. I will marry you. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. she's, she's got nothing concrete from him. And so she's just kind of like, okay, you know what? One thing I can do, I can climb over this fence that's one thing i can do mm -hmm. and i'm going to do it in this moment yeah and you can also again in, in a sympathetic way see how actually being able to physically overcome some kind of barrier would give her at least some sense of having like defied her fate in the grand scheme of things going over a fence and into the wild is relatively innocuous but for her, she's she's very aware of the symbolism of it, too. The fact that she very clearly says, I feel confined. It makes her choice here both literal and metaphorical for herself. I mean, Crawford has no justification. He's being awful. No. Crawford is being the worst in this entire scene. Yeah. This is, this is perhaps, you know, it's foreshadowing of him and Mariah, obviously, later on. Well, I think it's also interesting that he of course, doesn't realize because at this point he has no interest in Fanny in that way. Sure. But like that he's basically sealing his fate with Fanny. Yeah. Because she sees all this happening. And later on when he's trying to court her, she's basically like, are you kidding me? Like, yes. I know your morals, dude. Yes. No, thank you. <laughs> I was literally right there, sir, while you flirted with my engaged cousin. And then you're going to come and come ask me for marriage. <laughs> he really does shoot himself in his foot, you know, right here. Yeah, Crawford seems to, he he's really not thinking ahead, you know, at no. this moment. <laughs> but that also tracks with him. He has no foresight. That is his character all the way across mm -hmm. the board, essentially. Yeah, there's just, there's so much happening in this scene. Mm -hmm. Well, if you have any thoughts on the haha -ha scene or perhaps some pictures of a haha -ha that you yourself have hopefully safely visited and it was a... <laughs> a happy ha-ha and not a ha-ha kind of <laughs> situation. If you have anything like that that you would like to share with us, you can contact us via our Instagram, which is The Thing About Austin. And you can find us on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also find us on our website, thethingaboutaustin.com and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. And you can find all of our merch for the podcast on Redbubble, which you can find at aboutaustin.redbubble.com. Stay tuned for next episode, where we will be talking about annuities in Sense and Sensibility. Thanks for listening. Bye! Bye. <laughs> <laughs>